Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Devlina Chakraborty. And just a few weeks ago, we talked about the Bayou Tapestry, which is, of course, the embroidered record of the Norman Conquest, a really great piece of art, but also important if you're trying to see what the Norman Conquest, the Battle of Hastings, actually looked like. So the tapestry, though, leaves off after the battle is over, right after William the Conqueror is crowned King of England. But for our story today, we're going to pick up right there, really a generation after, when William's son, Henry I, faced this sudden succession crisis after a dynasty-ending shipwreck. And from there, our story really collapses into anarchy and battles between queens and escapes over frozen rivers before a new family comes into power. You might have heard of them if you're a regular listener, because we have done episodes on many of their family members, the Plantagenets, of course. But just a note before we start, prepare yourself for some serious name confusion, because not only do we have two kings named Henry, and when is that not the case, really, but pretty much every woman in the story is named Matilda. And I've chosen to leave a lot of the Matildas out. Just know that there are more. If you choose to research <laughs> this yourself, there will be even more Matildas for you to find. But starting where we left off with the Bayou Tapestry episode, William the Conqueror was pretty well-stocked in terms of sons. He didn't have any sort of inheritance problem looming, it seemed. But surprisingly, after one son was gored to death by a boar and another was imprisoned in this major case of sibling rivalry, it was the youngest son named Henry who became King of England and eventually the Duke of Normandy. So a little twist there early on in who inherits the throne. And that wasn't too bad. Henry proved to be a tough but powerful king who enforced peace in his lands. He didn't always jump to war and expansion, instead preferring to focus on negotiations and consolidating power where he already had it. He also had a lot of kids, except most of them were illegitimate kids. He seriously had about 25 illegitimate kids. A lot of them were named Matilda, too. (laughs) And his wife was also named Matilda, and she was a descendant of the old line of English kings. And he had three legitimate children with her who lived past childhood. And that was his daughter, Adelaide, who was later called Matilda. She's the one to focus on. He had a son named William and a son named Richard. So young William, who was, of course, the heir to the throne, seemed like a really promising future king, largely because he combined the Norman and the Saxon bloodline. So he was a grandson of the conqueror through his father, but he was also a descendant of the ancient line of kings through his mother. And in 1119, at the age of 17, his future really started to look even brighter. He accompanied his father on a successful campaign through the continent. He helped him to defeat Louis VI, who was also known as Louis the Fat. And he proved to be a very strong and a brave soldier, even at this young age. He was also married during this trip to the daughter of the Count of Anjou, hopefully with that alliance eliminating this long-term rivalry between Normandy and Anjou. So in general, it was a pretty successful trip to Normandy for both father and son. But by November 1120, the royal party was ready to depart from Normandy from the port of Barfleur and sail home to England. But docked at Barfleur was a shiny new vessel, 
the state-of-the-art white ship, which had 50 oarsmen and room for more than 300 passengers. It was a really large ship at the time. So it's naturally offered to the king as a means of transportation home, except he already has his own travel plans already worked out, and he suggests that it would make a nice treat for his son William instead. So November 24th, 1120, William, along with the cream of Norman and English youth, board the ship. There are 300 passengers total, including 140 knights and 18 noblewomen, including William's brother Richard, William's half-brother Richard, and half-sister Matilda, who's the Countess of Persh, his cousins, including Stephen of Blois, who disembarks after a bout of diarrhea, the nephew of Emperor Heinrich V, and many of the young heirs of the great Norman and English estates. So I, a lot of important kids. Yeah, I saw one one source describe them as the bright young people of the age, just the, the cream of society. So naturally, with all of the aristocratic youth on a ship of their own, with none of their parents on board, it's party time. And William has casks of wine bought, brought on board. And soon enough, both the passengers and the crew are drunk. When they finally set off, though, William, in some sort of youthful, competitive behavior with his father, encourages the drunk ship's master to catch up with Henry I's vessel. Even though Henry hadn't waited along while the youths partied on their ship, he had gone ahead and, and sailed on. But William wants to be the first to arrive in England. So the white ship takes off way too fast, obviously with a drunk crew not being manned very well, and it runs into a rock and capsizes. And William is quickly rushed to safety by his bodyguard and put aboard a a small rescue ship. But as far as the story goes, he insists on going back because he hears his half-sister crying for him. And he has the ship rowed back to the site of the accident. And there are so many people in the water who are struggling to not drown, that they pull the ship down and almost everyone aboard the white ship ends up dying, even though it's it's right off the shore. Apparently, people on land could hear the cries, but thought it was just more drunken revelry going on. So Henry the First line is wiped out in this one go. Four kids dead, no male heirs, and his second marriage bears no children. So he's left having to support his only remaining legitimate child, Adelaide, now called Matilda, who he finally names as heir Christmas 1126. So we're going to backtrack a little for Matilda to to catch you up with what she's been doing, since she obviously wasn't there in Normandy with the rest of her family when they were sailing aboard the white ship. Because she's been busy. She has been busy since uh, she was a small child, in fact. She was born in 1102, but she had spent much of her life in Germany, where she had been sent at about age seven to the court of her future husband, who was the Holy Roman Emperor Heinrich V. And sometimes he's called Henry V, but just to eliminate at least one extra Henry from the story, we're going to call him Heinrich. So Heinrich was 30 years Matilda's senior. Uh, and when she first arrived as a child, he immediately sent home all of her English attendants and really trained her up to follow German customs. Some people said that Matilda was more German than she was English or Norman. But as a teen, she impressed her husband with her level-headedness. She seemed like a uh, 
a really smart girl and and had the makings of a strong ruler. She even acted as his representative in Italy for a time when she was only about 16 or 17 years old. So she she was having a successful career as the wife of the emperor. But they don't have any children. So when Heinrich dies in May 1125, he places the scepter in her hands. And as you said, she was really popular in Germany. So she's probably interested in staying there, too. She's doing very well. But her father clearly has other plans for her, and he summons her back to his court, naming her his heir, and makes his barons swear an oath of allegiance to her. Part of the deal, though, is kind of a way to placate the barons with this unconventional arrangement of having a female heir, was a promise by Henry I that Matilda wouldn't remarry anyone outside of the land without the barons' permission. Which essentially means, well, she'll marry one of you guys, which sounds appealing to any baron present, probably. But that is not Henry's intention at all. He marries Matilda almost immediately in 1128 to the very unpopular Geoffrey Plantagenet, who is the son of the Count of Anjou. And Anjou, as we mentioned earlier, is a longtime Norman rival, so the barons aren't really happy with that aspect of it. And also, Geoffrey is only 15 years old, and he doesn't really seem to get on very well with Matilda. So, it seems like things are, are already sort of falling apart with this new female heir and Henry trying to get the barons behind him. But when the couple has their first son, also named Henry, in 1133 and quickly follow that with two more sons, it seems like maybe it, maybe it'll work out. Maybe the crown could pass to Matilda and then to her son, maybe even bypass Matilda if the son gets old enough. Something a little more conventional. So Henry has everyone swear an oath again. Actually, it's the third oath at this point, just for good measure, to make sure that everyone is on board with this plan that they have going. Among those swearing to uphold Matilda's claim was Henry's favorite nephew, Stephen of Blois. And Stephen's an interesting person in his own right. Through his wife, Matilda of Boulogne, Stephen also controlled her lands, conveniently one of the fastest routes to the Channel and to England. And this is really a crucial point, because in 1135, Henry dies, Henry I, that is, and his daughter and heir, Matilda, was not in England or in Normandy to stake her claim. She was in Anjou with her husband. So while she quickly returned to Normandy, Stephen made a move to England and claimed the throne for himself. So he got there first, essentially. And once he got there, he got popular approval. After all, it seemed to a lot of people that a usurper was better than having a woman ruler. And he had some influential supporters, too. He had an ambitious brother who is Bishop of Winchester, and he had some personal attributes that were compelling, too. He was a good soldier. He was very pious. So Stephen was crowned king on December 26, 1135. But after a few years, certain flaws in Stephen's ruling ability started to show. He wasn't very smart politically, and he lost a lot of his support, including that of Robert Earl of Gloucester, who was Henry I's eldest illegitimate son. Robert's move to support his half-sister proved to be pretty vital for Matilda's own cause and really crucial to her landing in England that finally happened in 1139. Yeah, so she lands in England in 1139, and this starts 19 summers and winters of war. This period is often called the Anarchy, but it was more like a civil war or a battle for succession. 
The Peterborough Chronicler famously called it the time when Christ and the saints slept. However, it could have been over almost from the start, almost as soon as it began, since when Matilda arrived in England, she went to Arundel Castle directly, which was the home of her stepmother and her stepmother's new husband, one of Stephen's supporters. So Stephen quickly marches to the castle, but instead of capturing Matilda, he allows her to go and meet up with Robert in Bristol. Seems like a pretty chivalrous move, right? It does, but it's one that Stephen felt like he really had to make because at this point, Matilda hadn't out and out declared herself as somebody who was trying to get back her birthright. He felt like if she hadn't declared that, he didn't really have a right to take her prisoner. But it it turns out to be a bad move on Stephen's part. It does, because by 1141, the tides turn again, and Stephen himself is captured in battle at the Battle of Lincoln in February. And Matilda is not so nice to him. He is put in leg irons and detained in Bristol. And so with the king in her pocket, Matilda is now at this point ready to call herself queen. Yeah, and and it seems like she really is all lined up to become queen. A clerical council at Winchester elects her, quote, lady of the English in April. That's a good first step. She starts planning her coronation at Westminster. But she's a bit overconfident because even though she has really strong Western allegiance, the Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't recognize her. Even the Pope doesn't recognize her. Plus, her people skills seem to be just about as bad as Stephen's. She really went around making a lot of enemies leading up to her coronation. She took her title before she was crowned. She started confiscating lands and honors. She didn't hear appeals from Stephen's wife, from his brother, from his children. And she rejected petitions, too, from the citizens of London for a return to King Edward's laws and instead taxed them, making enemies with the citizens of London Not usually a good idea. But what you'll find in sources most often is that Matilda offended the barons with her haughtiness. And that word is really used in almost every single source. You see it over and over and over again. And if you think about it, she's been an empress since she was under 10. (laughs) So she probably was pretty haughty, but it makes you think, too, a little bit about how that word is applied to a queen versus... Stephen, I mean, he's just come in and taken this throne. That's pretty haughty in in its own. That's true. But Matilda isn't crowned yet. And she had other problems, too, besides just her attitude that people didn't like. Stephen's wife, Matilda of Boulogne, wasn't about to let her own son's claims turn to dust just because her husband was imprisoned. So before Empress Matilda could even be crowned, the other Matilda raises an army and threaten the city of London with it. Matilda versus Matilda. But the people of London, they don't want to play at all. They also rose up against their almost queen, Matilda, and drove her from town. So things really got worse for Empress Matilda from there. While attacking Winchester, Matilda's brother Robert was captured. And when she retreated to Western England, she was so tired that she had to be carried on a leader, which led to this crazy story about her being carried in a coffin or on some sort of funeral pallet, which is not true. She was just exhausted. And eventually, because Robert was captured, she had to give up her main prize, King Stephen, in exchange for him. And this prisoner exchange was really just that. It didn't put an end. It wasn't any kind of treaty. It wasn't any kind of truce. Both parties were free to go on fighting. They each just had probably their most powerful players back. 
And by 1142, a freed and strengthened Stephen attacks Matilda at Oxford Castle, and this time he is not letting her go. No chivalry here. Matilda, dressed in white and escorted by some of her most trusted knights, escapes during the night over the frozen Thames and through the snowy camp of Stephen. By the time the siege falls, they realize that she's gone. That's probably the most romantic story associated with Matilda, and daring story, too. But the game was really up by then. Matilda retreated to her stronghold for a time. She minted her own coins, even, so she was still trying to hang in there. But Robert's death in 1147 meant that her battle with Stephen was essentially over. But Matilda's son, Henry, was almost grown by this point and was ready to assert his own claim. So he made a few expeditions to England, making allies, making friends. 1147 and again in 1149, he allied himself with Scotland while he was at it. And then in 1153, he reappeared to finally fight with Stephen's army. Later that year, the two armies met again at Wallingford Castle. But... This time, something really extraordinary and really out of the blue happened. Yeah, the armies refused to fight. Since the late 1140s, English magnates had started negotiating on how to end this drawn-out battle for succession. They were over it. Yeah, exactly. By 1153, they had clearly had enough, and they forced Stephen and Henry to come to an arrangement. Stephen will rule the rest of his life, but pass the throne to Henry. And this is all made a lot easier when Stephen's eldest son, Eustace, dies that same year. So there's really no competition for Henry at that point. Stephen himself died only one year later, leaving Henry II to rule for 35 years. He, of course, married Eleanor of Aquitaine and founded the Plantagenet family that ruled for more than 300 years. Matilda lived for a few more years herself, though, into her 60s. And even though she was pretty unpopular back in England, she was very popular in Normandy as the mother of the king. She's credited as helping to balance Henry II's temper in those early years of his rule, even though the English, because of their dislike for Matilda, were still a little suspicious of this influence. They didn't exactly like the idea of Matilda pulling a few strings with their king still. And another interesting fact that we've got to mention about Matilda, she was exhumed. And she was, in fact, exhumed so many times that to go through the list would maybe be a little bit boring. <laughs> I mean, to give you... I can't imagine exhumation being boring. I, well, I don't know. She's buried and reburied about every 200 years, if you... Okay, maybe that's kind of boring. And they didn't really do much. They just moved her to different locations, her around, right? Her, her church would be destroyed or something would be sacked. And the most recent exhumation happened in 1846 when she was finally relocated to the Cathedral of Rouen, which is originally where her father had wanted her to be buried. She had chosen a smaller location. So I guess everything comes full circle in the end. Her epitaph reads, quote, here lies Henry's daughter, wife and mother, great by birth, greater by marriage, but greatest by motherhood. And this is kind of an important note that we end on right here, because Matilda and the anarchy, they certainly damaged the idea of queenship in England. I mean, this informed the whole Tudor crisis. It really did. Of course, now we know that Elizabeth was going to be the great Tudor queen. And after her, we have Victoria, too. And that sort of changes our perception. But at this time and during Tudor times, clearly the idea of having another woman queen was 
really frightening. Another woman ruler, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, and we've talked about some of the English consorts before, which also helped add to this idea that a queen was a really bad thing for England. <laughs> but Matilda does get a lot of uh, responsibility for for that reputation. Although it's interesting if you think about it, because she couldn't be entirely dismissed or written off as some sort of queen devil by historians because she was the mother of the king and future kings were descended from him and therefore also from Matilda. It was through her claim that the kings had their claim to the throne. There's actually a new book out, too, about some of those women queens in England called She-Wolves by Helen Castor. And I read a review of it and an interview with the author in History Today where they even had a book club going. So I know English queens are a favorite of our listeners, and it must be a a favorite topic in general, too, for a lot of people. Holds a lot of fascination. But that's all we have today on this particular queen or would-be queen. And now we are going to go to listener mail. So we have two emails today on the Ballet Ruth episode, and the first one is from Matt in Cambridge, Ontario, and he wrote that he wanted to add a little tidbit to the Rite of Spring Riot podcast, and he said, I once wrote an article about the riot, and I thought it was interesting how well it was so violently protested in its day, it has since proved its worth and made its way into the annals of music history. This is exemplified by its inclusion on the Voyager Golden Records. There are two gold records on the Voyager spacecraft that were launched out into the cosmos in 1977 in hopes of making contact with intelligent life. The records contain greetings in 55 languages, samples of natural sounds like animals, wind, rushing water, and 90 minutes of music, including Bach, Mozart, and Chuck Berry, and of course, the Rite of Spring. So I thought that was interesting. I've heard about the Voyager Golden Records, but I hadn't realized that the Rite of Spring was included on them. So our next email is from Justin, and he was also writing about the ballet. He lives in Sydney, Australia, and said that um, there's an interesting Australian connection with the ballet. He said, when our National Gallery was being commissioned and works were being sought to fill it in the late 60s and early 70s, a whole set of ballet Russe costumes was purchased. Even more amazing was the fact that when they arrived, they were immediately put into storage with without even being looked at or properly cataloged, conserved. Fast forward to 2010, and these great pieces were unearthed, and when the full extent of the collection was realized, a major exhibition was planned and organized. The thing that I found most amazing about these particular costumes is that when they were packed away into their trunks for storage, they had literally just come off the dancers, and when they were examined, were shown to have makeup smudges and dirt from the last performance still on them. And um, I checked I checked out the National Gallery site to take a look at this exhibition. It's really cool. You can go there and look at images of the costumes. And I love costumes anyway, so it was yeah, pretty fun for me. I definitely recommend that for anyone who enjoyed that episode and wants to see some pictures related to it. So thank Where you. Where is the actual ex- exhibition? It's at the National Gallery in Australia. And their website is nga.gov.au if you want to look. You've got to search from there for the exhibition. It's easy to find. So if you want to send us any cool links like that, any good suggestions for podcast topics or comments on episodes we've already done, 
please feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and you can find us on Facebook. And if you just want to learn a little bit more about how royalty works, we have an article by that name on our website. You can look it up by visiting our homepage, which is at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 